many years uh, later, uh, I came there in 88 after coming back from Malaysia and Rod was there. And uh, then from that uh, time together, the Sound Words radio work that had become television as well evolved into a work called Truth for the World with which many of you are familiar. And uh, Rod and Brenda were instrumental in the beginning of that uh, work, uh, working with campaigns and literature uh, aspects of that uh, total approach to uh, the media outreach of Truth for the World. And um, we have been on trips to Africa and the Pacific and New Zealand and Fiji and uh, all sorts of places uh, uh, together. Uh, we love and appreciate this family. They are a great Christian family and the uh, uh, Rutherfords have done a tremendous amount of good over the years in the kingdom and continue uh, to do great good. Uh, Rod has also taught in other schools of preaching and he currently preaches for the Gatlinburg uh, Church of Christ right in Gatlinburg on Reagan Drive there in Gatlinburg and so if you're in Gatlinburg uh, they would love to have you uh, visit uh, with them there. He also is a, an outstanding writer and has contributed so much in that regard to our brotherhood. Uh, RodRutherfordBooks.com. I would strongly encourage you to write that down and visit that website and look at the material that is available there, like a study of denominational doctrines, the one true church, millennial mania, as he deals with premillennialism in such an effective uh, way in these study uh, uh, books that he has produced uh, over the years. Brenda has a book she wrote concerning her mission experiences as a uh, missionary wife on the mission field, Brenda's Diary. And uh, we encourage you to visit that website and take advantage of, of this material. Brother Rod Rutherford is a faithful gospel preacher. That's the best thing you could say about anyone uh, who is proclaiming the word of God, that he is faithful to the book, and we appreciate and love this family so very much. And we're delighted that Rod was able to work into his schedule this event and to be with us to speak now on the subject of the Restoration Personalities. Brother Rod Rutherford. Well, I fear after that wonderful introduction that anything I say is going to be somewhat of a letdown. <laughs> it was said that one prominent brother once said of Brother N.B. Hardiman that he hated to be introduced by Brother Hardiman because it was such a hard act to follow. But I do appreciate Brother Jim and his introduction and the kind words that he said. I'd like to tell you about some of the fun times we had and some of the interesting times we had on some of our overseas trips, but I'm not here for that purpose. Now, one of these days, maybe a hundred years from now, when they're studying the Restoration Movement, somebody will get up and give a lesson and speak about Wesley Simon and Jim Dearman and the work that they did back in this period of time. I do consider it a great honor to be asked to speak on this lectureship this morning. My wife reprimanded me when she found out that I'd agreed to come here, not that she has anything against you all, but she's trying to make me cut down. She thinks I'm working too hard for my age, and she's afraid it's going to get me into trouble. And she said, why did you agree to speak on a lectureship? You don't have time to do that. And I said, well, Jim Dearman asked me. And she said, oh, I understand that. <laughs> but I also told her that it's also on a subject that I love, and that's the subject of the Restoration Movement. 
Now, the restoration movement is a subject that I have been interested in since I was a boy. When I first learned about the beginnings of the restoration movement, it intrigued me. Having been a lover of history all my life, uh, I have learned to love and enjoy reading books on restoration history. And there's nothing I delight more than in reading restoration biographies. The lives of these great men have inspired me to try to work harder and do more for the Lord and be more faithful to his word. We do not hold up these men as authority. They are not our authorities. And they would be aghast if they knew that sometimes they're quoted as authority. They were great men seeking to serve God. They were coming out of denominational darkness, struggling to come into the light. They paved the way before us. They were the trailblazers, if you please, and we have the privilege of walking in their footsteps as they lead us back to New Testament Christianity. I'd like to talk about all the leaders of the Restoration Movement in the early days. Time doesn't permit. I thought when Jim asked me initially to speak on this subject that I would talk about Raccoon John Smith. He came to mind first simply because he's my favorite of all the Restoration preachers. You can't help but love Raccoon John Smith. And you can't help but be inspired by the many sacrifices he made for the cause of Christ. But as I thought about it, I realized that there were some others really who preceded Raccoon John Smith. And they really rightfully needed to be dealt with first. Now, I appreciate the fine, fine presentation that Wesley has given us this morning, and he's touched on some things that I will also be touching on. I'm not trying to be a copycat, but hey, there are three laws of learning, aren't there? Repetition, repetition, and the third one is repetition. So hopefully we'll do some learning this morning. I want to begin by talking about Barton W. Stone. I simply think of Barton W. Stone as the evangelist of Cane Ridge. Barton W. Stone, I believe, is an underrated leader in the Restoration Movement. He was overshadowed, I think, by Alexander Campbell, but he was a very great man, and uh, he deserves perhaps greater recognition than what he has received. He was born before the Revolutionary War, born in Port Tobacco, Maryland, in the year 1772. His father died when he was only three years of age. His mother was left, was raising the family. In order to make matters easier, she moved a little bit to the south, down to the North Carolina border. There, in 1779, Stone, as a small boy, remembered hearing the sound of distant cannon as battles of the Revolutionary War took place around them. He was a man who loved freedom, loved liberty, and he hated everything that enslaved man in any way. Now that's politically speaking, but later he applied that to spiritual matters. He was christened in the Church of England, but he really was not ever active in the Church of England. You see, the ministers of the Church of England were paid out of the taxes in the colonies. And when the war came about, most of them, uh, being loyal to Great Britain, the mother country, went back home. 
they had to go back home anyway because they were not being paid anymore. And so they left and the Church of England was left in great disarray. He grew up hearing mostly Baptist and Methodist preachers. He didn't care much for either one of them. He thought they were too confrontational. He didn't like the conflicts and the controversies that seemed always to be going on. In 1790, when Stone was just 18 years of age, he received an inheritance. He decided he would take the advice that Benjamin Franklin had given in Poor Richard Almanac. He, uh, Franklin said, A wise man is he who pours his purse into his head. And so Stone thought, I'll take my inheritance and get myself a good education. He wanted to be a lawyer. And so he began studying in a college in North Carolina run by a Presbyterian minister by the name of David Caldwell. During the time that he was a student at Caldwell's College, a revival took place uh, not far away. A well-known evangelist of that time by the name of James McCready came and did the preaching, and Stone attended with some of his fellow college students. Many of them, in the common parlance of the day, got religion, but not Stone. He didn't want anything to interfere with his plans for his career, and so he made no commitment at that time. But a year or so later, he heard another evangelist whose name was William Hodge. He liked Hodge ple preaching much better because instead of emphasizing the strict Calvinism of the day, he instead emphasized God's love for man and that God wanted men to be saved through their coming to the gospel. And so Stone became a member of the Presbyterian Church. Soon afterwards, he decided that he wanted to study for the ministry. But that involved understanding and swearing allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the creed of the Presbyterian Church. As he studied that and saw the deeply entrenched Calvinism, uh, he just could not take it. It did not harmonize with the Word of God. The Presbyterians, the Calvinists, believed that God, before the foundation of the world, had predestined and foreordained every individual who would ever live to be either saved or lost, elect or non-elect. And there was not really anything you could do about it. If you were among the non-elect, you were going to be damned. You were going to spend eternity in hell, no matter how much you loved God and wanted to be saved. But if you were among the elect, you would be saved, no matter how depraved a sinner you were. God himself would see that you were because he would send the Holy Spirit to open your heart up and implant miraculously faith in it that you might receive the gospel. Uh, Stone had a great deal of problem with that, and he didn't know what he was going to do with the confession of faith. But he was licensed to preach, not yet ordained, and he began preaching in Virginia. And then he moved westward to Knoxville, Tennessee. He didn't stay in Knoxville long. He decided to go on to Nashville. But in order to do that, he had to go through hostile Indian country. The Cherokees were on an uprising at that particular time. But he made it safely to Nashville. He looked around and he said, in effect, it's just a miserable little village with very little hope or promise. 
and he decided not to stay there. He headed north to the bluegrass country of Kentucky and went to Lexington. From Lexington, he moved a little bit north of there to the city of Paris. He found two congregations in the area, Concord and Cane Ridge, without preachers. And so he began preaching for them, and eventually he was ordained by the Transylvania Presbytery that was over that area of Kentucky. Now, part of his being ordained was that he had to vow allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and he was allowed to do so. They made an exception for him. They usually expected an unqualified yes, but he said, I do so insofar as I see it consistent with the Word of God. And so he was ordained a Presbyterian minister. He soon began to hear of some great revivals that were taking place in other parts of the country. He decided to go down to Logan County, Kentucky, uh, where one revival was in progress to see what was happening. And he went down and he found that thousands of people had come from many miles around. They were camped out in a wooded area. And there were different preachers holding forth, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, and others, all working together in an effort to save souls as they understood it. He was impressed by that, soul, uh, that show of unity in an effort to save souls. He went back home to Cane Ridge, and there in the year 1801, a great revival broke out there. Uh, this revival has gone down in history. You'll find it in the history books when it deals with the Second Great Awakening. But there were thousands of people. Some came even from as far away as Ohio, and again, preachers of various denominations were preaching, some of them here, some of them over yonder, preaching at the same time. But something interesting took place. When people got religion, when they were converted, they usually manifested it in a strange way. There were five different exercises, they were called, uh, by which people showed that they were saved as they understood it. One was the person would simply scream loudly and violently and then fall over like he was dead and remain in an unconscious state for a period of time. Another was that the person's body would be shaken by violent jerks and that would continue for some time until the person was exhausted. And then there was one where the person would simply dance and he would dance merrily until... Finally, he fell over from exhaustion. There was another one that was called the barking exercise. A person's body would be taken by violent jerks, and those jerks would cause one to emit a grunt, but that grunt sounded like a dog barking. And so there were those who showed they were saved by the barking exercise. And then there was one where the person would simply break out in either laughing or singing, would laugh uncontrollably or seem to not be able to help himself. He just continually broke out in song, and it was considered that these were works of the Holy Spirit. I don't think Stone ever fully, really, was able to come to terms with these things, but uh, as to whether or not they were from God or from some other source. The Transylvania Presbytery, under which uh, Stone served, was in opposition to this Cane Ridge revival. 
And so Stone and several of his fellow ministers got into great trouble because of that. He, along with Robert Marshall, Richard McNamara, uh, John Dunlavey, and John Thompson, decided in order to vo avoid charges being brought against them to leave the uh, Transylvania Presbytery and to form their own. And so they formed one called the Springfield Presbytery. It was made up of churches in Kentucky and a few over the border into Ohio. That lasted for only about a year. They soon realized there was no authority for such an organization, and so they decided to disband it. They wrote a tongue-in-cheek document called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. Now, they are poking a little bit of fun at things, but they set forth some fundamental doctrinal beliefs based upon the Word of God. It shows their progress in study. They, for example, uh, decided that the body ought to be uh, sunk into oblivion, they said, along with all other unauthorized uh, human organizations in religion. They suggested that they ought to be called simply Christians and not called by party names. They strongly emphasized that the Bible was the only sure guide to heaven and they did not need the creeds of men. They also had a poke at the idea of the clergy and suggested that their reverend title ought to be forgotten. But this has become one of the great documents of the Restoration Movement. Now, Wesley a while ago mentioned about Barton W. Stone and preaching on baptism. He, as he studied his Bible, he became convinced that baptism is immersion, unlike the Presbyterian practice, and that it is for the remission of sins. He was attending a meeting one time, and they weren't getting much results. The old mourner's bench system of getting sinners to come and to pray through and so on. And so he got up and tried preaching baptism for remission of sins. He said it was like throwing cold water on the enthusiasm of the people, and so he didn't do it again for a good long while. But some time later, as he came in contact with the writings of Alexander Campbell in the Christian Baptist, he became convinced that baptism for remission of sins was indeed part of the gospel plan of salvation. Stone began publishing a paper called The Christian Messenger in 1826. He published that paper until shortly before his death. There are many other things that we could say about this great and good and godly man as he sought to restore New Testament Christianity. But time doesn't permit if we're going to look at a couple of others. Stone died in Hannibal, Missouri in the year 1844 while visiting his daughter. His body was buried there but later was transported back to Cane Ridge where it lies buried today. Talbert Fanning said of Stone at the time of his death, a man more devoted to Christianity has not lived or died, and many stars will adorn his crown at a coming day. But we want to move on to Thomas Campbell. I call Thomas Campbell the architect of the Restoration. Thomas Campbell was a quiet man. He was a brilliant man, a great scholar, highly educated. He was a thinker. Had it not been for him, his son Alexander would not have achieved the heights 
that he achieved. Thomas Campbell perhaps is overshadowed by the talents of his more illustrious son. Thomas Campbell was a Scotsman. He was a well-educated minister of the anti-Burger seceder branch of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. So he knew a lot about denominational division. He was a part of a faction, which was a part of a faction, which was a part of a denomination, which of course was a part of so-called Christendom. Uh, after he had completed his education, Campbell began preaching in Northern Ireland. He preached for a little congregation called Rich Hill at a village called Ahore in County Armagh, Northern Ireland. He also ran a private academy. That was to supplement his income. He had a growing family. Also, it was a means of being able to educate his own children while he educated the children of others. But after several years of such hard work, he began to suffer problems, health problems. He had severe stomach problems. His doctor could find no cause for them, and so he prescribed a sea voyage as a cure. Now, Thomas Campbell had been thinking for some time about going to America. Many of his uh, friends and neighbors had already gone. His son Alexander had already told him that when he grew up, he was planning to make America his home. So Campbell decided to take a sea voyage to America, and he set sail for the United States in the year 1807. When he arrived in America, he went to western Pennsylvania, where there were many Scots-Irish people that he knew. And at the time he arrived there, the local synod of the anti-Burger seceder branch of the Presbyterian Church was in session. He presented his credentials to them and was readily accepted by them. He began to preach at various places, but he soon got into trouble. When it came time to have communion, he invited all Presbyterians to come for communion and not just the anti-Burger seceders. And so he was heavily criticized for that. Later, he was accused, rightly so, of saying there was no authority for creeds, that we needed simply the word of God. This all got him into, also got him into trouble, and charges were brought against him, and he was suspended from the Presbyterian ministry. But many of his good friends around Washington, Pennsylvania, enjoyed hearing him preach, and so they continued to ask him to speak in private homes and schools and groves and wherever people could gather. And so he continued his work of preaching the word of God. Now Thomas Campbell was a man of the book. One of the biographers of Thomas Campbell simply entitled his biography, Man of the Book. He loved the Bible. He knew the Bible. He memorized huge portions of the word of God. And he continued to do that as long as he lived. That the Bible was preeminently his book. And people loved to hear him preach the Bible. He and some friends of his decided to form an organization to study Christian unity. They simply called it the Christian Association of Washington. But Campbell penned a document to set forth the ideals of that movement. He called it the Declaration and Address. And in that document that was penned in, in uh, about 1808 and published in 1809, 
he emphasized some of these great slogans of the Restoration Movement that Brother Wesley has told us about in the powerful lesson that he preached. He emphasized that statement in all essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. And that famous uh, motto, let us speak where the scriptures speak and remain silent where the scriptures are silent is, uh, found, is found in the declaration and address. After a time, there were so many people coming to hear Campbell preach that it was decided that they needed to start a congregation. And so they began that congregation at Brush Run. That's a Brush Run is a creek. Uh, over in Pennsylvania, they began that in 1810. And many other things we could say about Thomas Campbell, but we'll close by saying that he spent his long life preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and supporting himself primarily through the running of private schools or academies. He was a great teacher, and he was much sought after as a teacher of young people. After Campbell's wife had died, he, had, he began to lose his eyesight. And so he made his home with his son Alexander at Bethany. And there on June the 1st, 1851, he preached his last sermon. He preached on the two great commandments, love for God and love for one's fellow man. He passed away on January the 4th, 1854, at the age of 91 years a life long lived in the service of God. His son Alexander said of him, I never knew a man of whom it could be said with more assurance that he walked with God. Now we want to take the remaining time, there's not a lot of it, but the remaining time to talk about Alexander Campbell. Most people associate Alexander Campbell's name with the restoration movement above all others. And he did foreshadow and overshadow, I should say, those of his contemporaries. He was a great man because he was naturally endowed with great talent and intelligence. I suppose that his IQ would have been certainly genius level without any doubt. He was a multi-talented man. Whatever he turned his hand to do, he seemed to succeed in doing that. And he was a man who also had unbounded confidence. Nobody would ever have accused Alexander Campbell of having an inferiority complex. He was a man of tremendous ability. We don't know exactly when he was born. There is controversy over the dates of his birth. Uh, they range all the way from 1781 to 1788. So we don't know if he died at the age of 78 or at the age of 85, or somewhere in between. We're quite not quite sure when he was born, but we do know that he was born in the village of Ballymena in County Antrim, North Ireland. He was the first child of Thomas and, and Jane Cornegal Campbell. Now, Alexander was educated primarily by his father. His father taught him the scriptures and taught him well. He was able to quote entire books of the Bible by the time that he was a grown man. He also was well-versed in ancient and modern languages. He understood science of the day, philosophy. He understood a new literature. He loved the English poets and could quote extensively 
from the great poets in the English language. He was fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Latin as well as French and German. And so he was a scholar in every way, though he never possessed a college degree. He and his family set sail for America in 1808 when their father, Thomas, had sent word that they should come. They started on their voyage late in the shipping season, and because of that, the journey was going to be very dangerous. And it proved indeed to be dangerous. They were shipwrecked off the coast of Scotland. No lives were lost, and most of their possessions were saved. But they had to wait until the next shipping season before they could cross the stormy Atlantic. And so they remained in Glasgow, Scotland. This gave Alexander time to receive the only college training he ever had. He attended the University of Glasgow and he studied under excellent professors, some of whom had taught his father before him. But he also became acquainted with a preacher whose name was Greville Ewing. Ewing preached for a church that had several hundred members. It was a part of a Scottish restoration movement led by two wealthy brothers, the Haldane brothers. There Campbell learned a great deal about the restoration of New Testament Christianity. And no doubt this had a great effect in molding his thinking. But eventually they were able to make their way to America and the family was reunited. When uh, Thomas and Alexander first got together, Thomas was uh, somewhat dreading to tell his son about his change from the Presbyterian church. And he was delighted to find that his son had also greatly changed in his thinking. When he read the declaration and address, he told his father he was in agreement with it 100%, and he intended to spend his life uh, spreading those principles. But he added one other thing. He said, I'm going to preach without remuneration. I'm going to give my services in spreading the gospel freely. Now, Campbell probably did a disservice to many gospel preachers since that time because some brethren think we all ought to be Alexander Campbell's. <laughs> well, some of us don't have the ability and the opportunities that Campbell had, but he was able to spend his life preaching without remuneration. He was very successful as a businessman. Campbell gave himself to an intense study of the scriptures. And then after he had studied the scriptures, he preached his first sermon at Brush Run on September the 16th, 18 and 10. And he began one of the most illustrious careers of a gospel preacher of perhaps any man this side of Pentecost. On March the 12th, 1811, Alexander married a young woman, Margaret Brown, who was just over the border in Bethany, West Virginia. She came from a well-to-do family. Uh, she and Alexander had decided they were going to move west. In those days, moving west was going to Ohio. And they had land, or we were looking at land, somewhere around where the city of Cleveland exists today. But uh, Margaret's parents didn't want their children to go so far away from them. And so in order to in induce them to stay nearby, her father gave Alexander a 200-acre farm. The farm had an unusual house on it. It was referred to as the mansion 
because it was the largest and most pretentious house for many miles around. Campbell spent the rest of his life living in the mansion on that farm. He greatly improved the farm. He became president of the Sheep Breeders Association of America, and actually he made quite a lot of money as a farmer as well as in many other business investments and thus was able to travel extensively and preach the gospel. Now, as Wesley mentioned briefly, uh, when Alexander's first child was born, a daughter, Dorothea, the whole subject of infant baptism came up. What were they going to do about that? They hadn't given a lot of thought and study to that, but they had been christened in the Presbyterian church. Should we have our daughter christened? And Campbell said, I'm going to the Bible and see what the Bible says about that. He did an extensive study in the Bible and in church history. He studied actually writings in several languages. And then he decided in the New Testament, baptism is immersion. And only adults were baptized, and they were baptized upon a confession of their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So he said, that's what we're going to do. And he and his wife decided to do that. He tried to convince his father, who was somewhat reluctant to go along with it. But Alexander went ahead and made arrangement with Matthias Luce, a Baptist preacher, who had a hard time agreeing to baptize him the way Philip baptized the eunuch uh, and the way that he, uh, upon the eunuch's simple confession of faith, uh, this Baptist preacher wanted to do it according to the Baptist way, which required a person to give a testimony of an experience, a, a congregation to vote on it. And if it was voted as being a valid experience, then they would allow him to be baptized and become a member of the Baptist church. And uh, Alexander refused that. But Luce finally agreed. When the day came, June the 12th, 1812, Alexander and his wife Margaret came to Buffalo Creek near his Bethany home. But his mother and his father also came, and his sister, and Mr. and Mrs. James Hennon, members of the Brush Run Church, along with the good friend James Foster, all came, and they all made a confession of faith in Christ as the Son of God and were immersed by Matthias Luce in Buffalo Creek. Now that took a long time. You wouldn't think it'd take long to baptize seven or eight people, but it took them seven hours because, you see, you've got three preachers there that day and two of the preachers are being baptized and preachers are going to preach and they're going to tell why they're going to be baptized. There was a man, Joseph Bryant, a neighbor. Many people from the neighborhood came to see this site. There was a neighbor who was in the home militia during the War of 1812. He came to attend the baptism. He had to leave and go for a drill for the home militia. He completed the drill and came back and was there for the rest of the baptismal service. It went on that long, but they were immersed into Christ. Well, time is failing me to tell of other accomplishments of Alexander Campbell. He had a number of well-publicized debates, and his debates are a little bit difficult to read, but they're well worth reading even to this day. He debated on baptism, the work of the Holy Spirit, infidelity, creeds, Catholicism. He debated in his later debates, particularly the outstanding proponents of error of that day. 
he began publishing a paper in order to spread the principles of the Restoration Movement. The Christian Baptist was published from 1823 to 1830. Now to mail it out, he needed a post office. There wasn't one at Bethany. He applied to the government for one. He was made the postmaster of Bethany, thus making more money for him, you see. And he had the convenience of mailing out the Christian Baptist uh, from right there at home. Later, he published the Millennial Harbinger from 1830 to near his death in 1865, or a year before his death. He saw a need for trained leadership in the church. And so in 1841, he founded Bethany College. And though he himself did not possess a college degree, he served as a president of Bethany College until his death in 1866. He traveled widely preaching the gospel. He would be gone for months at a time. He traveled from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, from the New England states as far west as Kansas and Iowa, and that in a day and time when travel was much more difficult and much more dangerous than it is in our day and time. He made a trip to the British Isles in 1847. He was imprisoned for a while in Scotland because of false accusations and charges brought against him by a Scottish minister. And that in itself is an interesting study. He was a well-known man. One historian referred to him as a great celebrity of his day. Now today we have instant celebrities, don't we? Sports, athletics, uh, movie stars, musicians come and go. But this was before the days of media made celebrities where celebrities are here and then two or three years from now they're forgotten. He became so well known throughout the country that he moved in the circle of presidents and senators and governors. He spoke before a joint session of the United States Congress. He spoke uh, at several state legislatures as he traveled around the country preaching the gospel. He was well known one of the best religious, uh, known religious leaders of his time. Campbell was married twice. His first wife, Margaret, died of tuberculosis after giving birth to eight children. Most of the children from that first marriage also died of tuberculosis. Before Margaret passed away, she didn't want her husband to be lonely. She made arrangement for him to marry her best friend. And, uh, and so Campbell did. But for the rest of his life, he wore his wedding ring from his first marriage. And every year on the anniversary of his first marriage, he celebrated that anniversary. I don't know what his second wife thought about that, but she seems to have been a long-suffering person. He had six children by her, a total of 14, but only three survived him. Most died at early ages. In Campbell's later years, he went into a state of mental decline. It was said that when he preached the great sermons that he had preached through the years, that he was the equal of any time, even when he was in his prime, he could do just as well. But he had difficulty preparing any new sermons. And sometimes in private conversations, he had difficulty even carrying on a conversation. He uh, 
imagined that he had done things and been places that he'd only heard about. And that happened in his old age. I suspect that if he were living today, he would be uh, diagnosed as having uh, Alzheimer's disease. Even a great and brilliant man like Alexander Campbell uh, can fall prey to such things. Campbell died at his home in Bethany, West Virginia on March the 4th, 1866. A great man. All of these men of the Restoration Movement were great men. We need to remember that beside every great man, there's a great woman. Men cannot travel extensively and be away from home as much as these men were unless they have good supportive wives and their role needs to be recognized. We also need to recognize that there are probably 20 or 30 men that we study about today as restoration pioneers and hold in high esteem. But there were thousands of others, men and women, who wanted to go back to the Bible and restore the church of the Bible and be simply Christians, nothing more and nothing less. And they were willing to give and to sacrifice for the cause. And it may be that their labors and sacrifices in some instances equaled or even exceeded those of the great men that we often hold up. Thank you very much for your very kind attention today.